welcome to Tuned to Yesterday, broadcasting programs from radio's golden years. I'm your host, Mark Lavonier, and coming up in this hour, quiz programs. Later on, it's You Bet Your Life with Groucho Marx. But first, information, please, with special guest Rex Stout, hosted by Clifton Fadiman. This NBC episode heard on September 26, 1939. Information, please. Presented each week at this time by Canada Dry, famous the world over for its fine beverages. Wake up, America. Time to stump the experts and enjoy a cool, refreshing glass of ginger ale. Every week at this time, Canada Dry presents Information, Please. Here's the way we play the game. It's a game in which you supply the stumpers and we supply the stumpees. You may submit from one to three original questions with the correct answers. For every question our quartet fails to answer, the sender gets $10 with the compliments of Canada Dry. For every question we use, whether or not it's answered correctly, the sender gets $5. So you can make $15 if our experts miss out, which they occasionally do. Our editorial staff may reword your question a trifle. Don't worry about it. Whenever there is a duplication of questions, Information Please uses the one that was submitted first. All questions become the property of Information Please and should be addressed to Canada Dry, 1 Pershing Square, New York City. Now may I present our Master of Ceremonies, Mr. Clifton Fadiman, literary critic of the New Yorker magazine. Mr. Fadiman. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Information, Please is, as you know, a spontaneous and unrehearsed program. Facing me at a long table this evening is our famous double threat, John Kieran, sports expert and fount of universal knowledge, and Franklin P. Adams, conductor of the famous Conning Tower column in the New York Post. Rex Stout, creator of the Nero Wolf mystery stories, who has been with us before, is with us again tonight. And our special guest of honor is the noted literary critic and biographer Carl Van Doren, whose admirable biography of Benjamin Franklin ran off with a Pulitzer Prize this year. Now remember, for each question that's missed, Canada Dry rings up $10, which is cheerfully paid out to the sender, plus $5 for the use of the question. That much established, let's be off with a question coming to us from Mrs. Rebecca Simon of Brooklyn, New York. Uh, Mrs. Simon takes us back to our colonial history, pre-colonial history practically, she wants to know whether you can name four vegetables or plants that were used by the American Indians before they were known in Europe. Kind of red Indian blue plate, gentlemen. Mr. Van Doren had his uh, hand up first, I think. Well, they had um, potatoes. They had potatoes? And tomatoes or tomatoes, which they, they called them tomatoes. The Indians? Tomata. Really? I had no idea. I thought that uh, that was simply a refinement on the, on the original word tomato. Is that no, the Indian pronunciation? That's the original idea. I'm awfully glad to know that. Potatoes, uh, potatoes and uh, tomatoes. Yes, that gives us two. Mr. Had, Adams? They had maize or Indian corn. Uh, make up your mind. That's the same thing. Yes, of course it is. I'm just trying to get you off the track. That's three. Very good, Mr. Adams. Let's have another. Mr. Stout, did you have your hand up? Uh, Mr. Kieran? They took my vegetables out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> that gives us three vegetables. Uh, we ought to name several more. You want to sweet potatoes beef count for an extra, will you, Mr. Uh, call Adams? them yams, Mr. Yams. Stout, and I'll let it go. Uh, Mr. Adams? They had the wild onion. How'd they tame it? I don't understand. I don't know, but that is what Chicago means. That's true, but uh, is it because uh, wild onion That's grew? That's an Indian name. Is it really? What do you think, Mr. Van Doren? I know that... Uh, well, wild onions grow in Africa, too. Gorillas live on them. The things you know, Mr. Van Doren... <laughs> It's quite possibly true, Mr. Adams. Anyway, we're over the border with uh, four vegetables or plants. Uh, Indian nuts, maybe. Uh, do you think? I don't, I don't know whether those Indian nuts that were popularized by once in a lifetime were used by the Indians. Apparently none of my experts know either. Peanuts. Uh, peanuts. Peanuts uh, are, uh, are an Indian staple. Yes. I think cranberries, though I'm not sure of that. Do you know, Mr. Van Dorn, whether cranberries were used by the Indians? I don't know. They had a very varied diet, apparently. And summer squash. Indian summer squash, you might even say. Right, you to chew. Uh, the next question from E. Leonard Kaum of Morrisville, Pennsylvania, uh, has to do with crime, rather with detectives. Now, there are various odd ways of making a living, and one of the oddest is writing detective stories, isn't it, Mr. Stout? Yes. Uh, Mr. Stout has made crime pay, and I'm going to uh, ask Mr. Stout and also his colleagues this evening uh, to identify the following fictional detectives who have appeared very successfully 
in a series of books or on the screen. I want you to name one fictional detective, detective who is usually aided by his father. One who is usually aided by his father, Mr. Van Doren. What were you going to say? I really should let that go to Stout. Well, no, we'll try him again. Uh, Mr. Stout? Ellery Queen. Ellery Queen, yes. So who is his father? Do you remember? Father is a police inspector in New York City. Name is Queen. Name, Name is Queen, Queen, yes. <laughs> that makes everything okay. And uh, I'd hate to ask you to mention the uh, actual titles of books by one of your rivals, Mr. Stout, but could you name uh, one or two of Mr. Queen's books? Excellent books they are, aren't they? The Adventures of Ellery Queen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a good trick. You might remember yeah. that sometime for a title yourself. I've, I've read every one of them, Mr. Fadden. Are they all right? They're good, they're good detectives. Uh, all right, yes. Yeah. Uh, some others are The Roman Hat Mystery, The American the Gracie Allen Mystery. Murder. The, the Greek Yellowmer, I think it was S.S. No, Van Dyne, Mr. Was it? The Greek Cross Mystery. The Greek Cross Mystery. That's a very bloody one. I remember that distinctly. Kept me up for three or four minutes. Uh, of course, there were some others that appeared under another name. Were they really, Mr. Van Dyne? I didn't know that. Oh, I've been told. I thought you were a literary critic. You mustn't let these things out. Oh, the no, craft I... doesn't allow it. You know. I cheat. And while we're on the subject of fictional detectives, uh, can you name one who has been aided by his son occasionally? We have one who was aided by his father in his work, one who has been aided by his son. It's a very famous one. Aided by his son? In more than one book, Mr. Fadden? Well, it's a, it's a series of books, yes. You mean the, a, the detective? Yes, the that's right. The detective has been aided by his son. And the series of books in which this detective appears, I have, have uh, I think that series has been screened very successfully. Uh, Mr. Van Dyke. Charlie Chan. That's quite right. Charlie Chan. Charlie Chan uh, was aided by his son. They sprung a second son, too, in the film. I resented. That's so? But not, no, pardon me, Mr. Fatterman. Mr. Not, not in any of his books was he aided by his son, except that his son laced up his shoes or something for him. He well, may have been in the movies. That's a help. That's a help. That's a big help. Certainly. <laughs> as a matter of fact, if Charlie Chan were as fat as your detective, uh, Nero Wolf, having someone... He'd have to have his... several sons to exactly. lace up his shoes. And the boys have had a chance, chance to grow up now. <laughs> Uh, name a fictional detective who is aided by his secretary, uh, Mr. Stout. Perry Mason. Perry Mason, yes, has a secretary, Della Street, who knows all the answers. Very cute kid, too. Uh, does anyone help Nero Wolf in your own uh, series of stories, Mr. Stout? I do pretty often. You do often. <laughs> the next question from Robert B. Jackson of this city. It's a very simple question. You ought to know the answer to it right off the reel. Which two candidates for the vice presidency of the United States who ran against each other, both became presidents of the United States. Uh, Mr. Kieran. I think uh, Jefferson and Adams. No, I don't think so. Well, they were all uh, candidates. Of course, they did be both become presidents, president. but I don't think they ran against each other for vice president. Mr. Van Doren, does your memory, can your memory help us out there? In those days, uh, the one who was got... only the, one party, I think. The one, one who, who got, got the most votes was president, and the one who got next was That's vice right. president. Well, then they are not running against each other for vice president. <coughs> All right, officer, I'll go quietly. <laughs> All right, Mr. Kieran. <laughs> hate to argue with you, Mr. Kieran. Uh, the, there's only one possible answer, and I'm rather surprised you don't know it. Calvin Coolidge and Franklin D. Roosevelt opposed each other in 1920. Uh, members of the Harding versus Cox. Uh, remember that? And, of course, both became president later on. Well, that loses $10 for us, courtesy of Canada Drive, going out to Mr. Jackson of the city. We have a question coming to us from Madison, Connecticut, thought up by Mr. Charles T. Letson. And it involves your knowledge of bestsellers, recent bestsellers of the last year or two. I'm going to describe very briefly three scenes and ask you to tell me from what bestseller each of these scenes comes. In the first one, a fresh, warm liver is used to treat a rattlesnake bite. A fresh, warm liver is used to treat a rattlesnake bite. Mr. Stout. The Yearling. The Yearling, quite right, by uh, Mrs. Rawlings. In that story, uh, Penny, one of the characters, kills a doe to get at the liver and cure a rattlesnake bite. Quite right. Uh, the second one, a wife becomes overly jealous of her children's governess. A wife becomes overly jealous of her children's governess. Uh, Mr. Stout again. Jane Eyre. Uh, I have to... I'll have to ask you to make it a recent bestseller, if you don't mind. Honest, sir. Uh, you, you know, gentlemen? Well, that was a very, very great bestseller of last year. 
a very good book called All This and Heaven Too by Rachel Field, the New England novelist. And the book, as a matter of fact, is based on a famous story connected with the life of her own great aunt. And in this story, uh, Mademoiselle Desportes de Luzy, a French woman who is a governess in, a, in an aristocratic household, arouses the jealousy of uh, the wife of the household, and there's a scandal. And if you want to know what happens, read the book. All This in Heaven Too by Rachel Field, 250. Uh, in the... We got that one wrong, didn't we? I was the only one who knew the answer to that. Uh, third and last, a flood rises under an old freight car. A flood rises under an old freight car. Mr. Stout. Grapes of Wrath. The Grapes of Wrath, yes. Can you uh, give us a little more information about that situation? I'm sorry I can't, Mr. Fadiman. I haven't read the book, but from the incident, I judged it must be from the Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> <laughs> That is what we and call frankly, I did the same thing nutshell. with the yearling. I haven't read that either, but that incident could only have come from the yearling. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Stout, you're practically equipped to become a book reviewer. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite right, Mr. Stout. The whole Jode family uh, has to leave the old freight car as the water rises under it, and they seek relief in a barn. And what happens in that barn uh, provides the last scene of the famous Grapes of Wrath by Mr. Steinbeck. We got two out of three on that, but we were supposed to get three out of three. I'm going to let $10 go out to Mr. Letson, courtesy of Canada Drive. Thank you. The next question shifts us into an entirely different field. Mr. Richard Martinson of Manhasset, Long Island, is curious to see whether you can give, within 20 miles either way, the speed record set in each of the following vehicles, airplane, auto, motorboat, and train, within 20 miles one way or the other, airplane first. Uh, Mr. Stout? Within 20 miles? Yes, within 20 miles. Up or down? 480. You're 40 miles out. I'm awfully sorry. Well, that's not bad. That's not bad. I, I, going at that rate, it must make very little difference, I should think, Mr. Stout. <laughs> the answer is 440.6 miles per hour, and I don't know who made the record. Do you, Mr. Kieran, by any chance? No, know I don't. Anyone? It's fast enough, anyway. Now, auto. Auto. Uh, Mr. Stout, are you... Uh, I can come in less than 20 of that. All right, see what you can do with it. 370. That's right. That's Three... within two miles, I That's think. That's within a mile, point fifteen. That's very good, Mr. Stout. Very good indeed. How do you happen to know that? I read the papers. It's just books that you don't read, Mr. Stout, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> motorboat. Motorboat. Mr. Kieran? Well, there are various types, but I think the fastest speed recorded for that kind of contraption is 141 miles an hour. That's what I call hitting it on the nose. 141.74. He could have given me the .74 if I'd pressed him, I'm sure. Couldn't you, Mr. Kieran? Who set that record? Do you know? Uh, no, I don't recall his name. I don't know. You can tell me anything. 141.74 miles per hour. And finally, a train. A train. That I think we should all know because it's a vehicle that we all travel by. Within 20 miles? Within 20 miles either way, Mr. Kieran. Take a chance at it. Uh, 100 miles. Very good. Just within. 120 is correct. <laughs> <laughs> that gives us three out of four, which is all that Mr. Martinson of Manhasset, Long Island, required of us. Mr. John S. Stewart of Struthers, Ohio, whose mind seems to be running to assassination this week, wants to know who shot each of the following characters. I'll give them to you in order. Who shot Rebecca? This is not the Rebecca, Mr. Stout of Ivanhoe, which I imagine you have read, but a different Rebecca entirely, the Rebecca of a bestseller of last year. Uh, none of you gentlemen have read Rebecca, Mr. Kieran. Her husband shot her. That's right. How'd you know that, Mr. Kieran? I've read, read the book. <laughs> oh, you've read the book. You're yeah. awfully quiet about that. I found it my way, and I read it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Max de Winter, her husband, in the novel by Daphne du Maurier, shot Rebecca. Very good, Mr. Then Kieran. Then sank the boat with her. You know everything about it, Kieran. I had no idea. Who shot Trampas? T-R-A-M-P-A-S. Mr. Kieran again. The Virginian. The Virginian, yes. In what book? Uh, the Virginian by Owen Wister. Very good. In The Virginian by Owen Wister. At sundown. <laughs> on an island. That was Mr. Stout contributing his bit of information. Uh, who shot Richard Corey? That's C-O-R-Y. Richard, Mr. Van Doren. Shot himself. Very good, Mr. Van Who is Richard Corey? Uh, he was a boy in a poem by Edward Arlington Robinson. He yes. glittered when he walked. Uh, what, what is the point of that the poem, Mr. Van Doren, if I may He ask? was a very happy man. Everybody thought he was. And he went home and put a bullet through his head. Yes, that's the last line. It's kind of inner melancholy. 
Yes, that's exactly right. Went home and put a bullet through his head, I think, is the, is the last line of the poem. I know it is. All right. I'm not contradicting you, Mr. Vandorn. I'm sure you know it is. Uh, who shot Mr. Howard? Who shot Mr. Howard? Uh, Mr. Adams. Dirty little coward. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and I've never known Mr. Adams to be more indignant about anything, ladies and gentlemen. Can you... poor Jesse and his grave. Yeah, poor Jesse and his James. Who, uh, how did uh, Jesse, James, and Mr. Howard come to be mixed up in the same poem? I never could find out by reading it. You want me to tell you? Yes. All right, here we go. Teaching Mr. Adams something. It's a new experience for me. Howard was an alias for Jesse James, and a man named Robert Ford shot him in St. Joseph, Missouri, <coughs> in April 3rd, 1882. And he was known at that time as Thomas Howard, an alias. Jesse James had a wife, a mourner all her life. Children, they were brave. Or the dirty little coward that shot Mr. Howard. He the laid late poor, poor Jesse, Jesse in his grave. grave. That's right. <laughs> all right. That uh, finishes the questions on assassination, gentlemen. And the check signer so far tells us that Canada Dry has said farewell to the light sum of $20, which have flown off in the direction of the expert stumpers of the experts. Now we'll pass on to the second part of the program with a question of, about etymology. Mr. D. Morris of New Orleans, Louisiana, asks you what the following words mean with their usual prefixes lopped off. For example, what does the word sheveled mean? S-H-E-V-E-L-E-D. Sheveled. What is the usual prefix to the word sheveled? Dish. Van Doren? Yes, for Mr. Adams, or dish. Or rather, D-I, just Dish. Yes. Uh, what would you say shoveled meant, Mr. Van Dorn? Well, has reference to your hair. Yes, go ahead. If you dishevel, your hair is um, uh, mixed up. Yes, and shoveled, if, if you used the word, you'd have all your hair there and something like order. That's exactly Far wrong. Far from Kemp. That's exactly <laughs> wrong. I'm awfully sorry, Mr. Van Dorn, but shoveled means precisely the same as disheveled. Language is so unfair these days. Shoveled uh, simply means disheveled or disarrayed or careless uh, in appearance. Awfully sorry, Mr. Van Dorn. Awfully the sorry. Throne. Yep. Uh, what does evitable uh, mean? Evitable, E-V-I-T-A-B-L-E, uh, Mr. Adams. Avoidable. Yes, it is the opposite of inevitable, as you were going to tell us, Mr. Kieran, I'm quite sure. Right. Right. Uh, aren't we working together beautifully this evening, gentlemen? What does rabble mean? Rabble, R-A-V-L, not the composer of the bolero, Mr. Stout. But to ravel a thing yes. means to sew it up or to, or to weave it. You think it would be the opposite of unravel. Is that, uh, am I correct in well, your assumption? not necessarily. It might Don't be hedge. the precursor of unravel. No, it uh, means precisely the same. Same thing. Yes, same thing. Adams, that's right. And I don't think that you are quite accurate on that, Mrs. Stout. Ravel means to untwist or disentangle or unknot. Do you want Mr. Van Doren and me to try any more? Uh, <laughs> no, that is the last one. It's, it's like uh, regardless and irregardless and disirregardless, you know. It all means the same thing, no matter how many people. How about ebriate? How about ebriate? Ebriate means the same thing as inebriate. Does it really, Mr. Adams? Yes, sir. I have <laughs> I remember when we were children, it used to worry us that half empty and half full meant the same thing, too. <laughs> Cute, isn't it? Well, we lost uh, two out of three on that, which means that Canada Dry will pay out to Mr. Morris the sum of $10. Thank you so much. The next question... Coming to us from Scranton, Pennsylvania, and dreamed up by Libby Murray, uh, has to do with poetry. I'm going to uh, quote a line and ask you to cap it by giving me the famous line that follows it. Ill fares the land to hastening ills of prey. Mr. Kieran. Where wealth accumulates and men decay. Nobly said, Mr. Kieran. Goldsmith. Goldsmith. Uh, what poem? The Deserted Village. Yes, what grade did you learn this in, Mr. Kieran? Fifth grade. Fifth grade. I hope his teacher is listening. Uh, the next line, good nature and good sense must ever join. Cap that. Good nature and good sense must ever join. Mr. Stout. If any man expects to ever loin. <laughs> <laughs> um, well... That may become famous from now on. <laughs> if any man expects to Evaloin, we will not here have to credit uh, to Mr. Rex Stout, comma, poet, period. Unfortunately, there is an even better known line, Mr. Stout, though perhaps not as amusing as that one. Good nature and good sense must ever join to err is human, to forgive divine. Devoin. Devoin, yes. <laughs> Mr. Van Doren, do you think in the 18th century join was pronounced jine? Yes, it was, certainly. Uh, just as T was pronounced tay and, yeah. and all that sort of thing. 
So I should have read it. I should have read it. Good nature and good sense must ever jine to errors human to forgive divine. That's the reason I didn't know it. Yes, I know that, Mr. Van (laughs) One wrong so far. (coughs) Uh, Here is the last. Fiddle-dee-dee, fiddle-dee-dee. Complete that famous line. Fiddle-dee-dee, fiddle-dee-dee. Mr. Adams is looking absolutely tragic about his lack of knowledge of fiddle-dee-dee, fiddle-dee-dee. I'll repeat it for you in order to make the whole line clear. Repeat it back. Fiddle-dee-dee, fiddle-dee-dee. Why didn't you say so? (laughs) Does that help you, Mr. Adams? No. All right, the answer is fiddle-dee-dee, fiddle-dee-dee, the fly shall marry the humblebee, often known as bumblebee. Never heard of it. Who wrote it? Mother Goose. The fly shall marry the humble bee. Seems impossible. An insectuous marriage, gentlemen. Uh, Two wrong out of three. That means that $10 is going out to Libby Murray, courtesy of Canada Drive. Thanks. What can you do with this one? The Senate is very much in the public eye at the present moment, and no doubt enjoying it. Uh, James M. Meade. James M. Meade is a senator from what state? New York. Uh, New York, yes. Mr. Kieran, uh, you, are, you, you live in New York or the Bronx. Yes. And, uh, he's a recent senator. Yes, he's a recent senator. They Mr. haven't Adam. heard about him in the Bronx yet. <laughs> <laughs> what can you do with the next? Coming to us from P. Brown of Miami, Florida. Uh, Mr. Brown has thought up a number of situations from history having to do with a gentleman who got into trouble because of their wives. What man took to the mountains because of his wife, for example? What man took to the mountains? Mr. Adams. Might have been Rip Van Winkle. It was, indeed. No need of being hypothetical about it. Rip Van Winkle took to it's the mountains. Kind of vague, however. Well, he, he passed the 20 of the most peaceful years he of was his life as a result. Now, gentlemen, what man started a war because of his wife? Mr. Kieran. Menelaus. Menelaus. So who was Menelaus? He Kieran? was the uh, legal hus- husband of uh, the woman who became known as Helen of Troy. Yes. And uh, in what place? Where will you find the story? In the Iliad. In the Iliad, yes. It's out of copyright. We can name the book. The Iliad by Mr. Homer. Uh, what man died because he wouldn't take his wife's advice? What man died because he wouldn't take his wife's advice? Mr. Kieran again. J. Caius Caesar. That's right. His wife, Calpurnia, his wife, Calpurnia, uh, advised him not to go forth on the Ides of March, and uh, he, as usual, didn't listen to his wife. Yeah. <laughs> I may as you mean well Caius J. Caesar, don't right. you? Right. Caius J. Caesar. Mr. Kieran's I wife should... is here in the studio, and uh, you will note the caution of his responses this evening. Well, we're all right on uh, these situations dealing with domestic difficulties. What can you do with this one, which comes from Mrs. Dudley G. Gimba of Allentown, Pennsylvania? Name four things that can be stolen without breaking the law. For example, uh, to steal the show. <clears throat> something that no one of our experts is doing this evening. Mr. Stout. Time. Steal time? Yes, Mr. Kieran. Steal second base. Uh, yes, steal second base. Very good, Mr. Van Doren. To steal your nerves. Oh. <laughs> well, I guess that finishes Mr. Van Doren. <laughs> All right, very good. Mr. Kieran? To steal out of our company. Oh, very nice. How about uh, using some other word than steal? Uh, Mr. Uh, Stout, do you have one? No, I was just going to say steal away, which is only a synonym for Mr. Carey. Yes. Uh, how about robbing the cradle, gentlemen? That would be all right. Uh, that's still there. Uh... There are laws against that. Yes, but they don't work. <laughs> uh, pinching a cheek would be all right, too, as long as we're on this subject. Or uh, to uh, beat a march. Or to, uh, oh, uh, steal a kiss. Uh, there are a number of others. That one or think swiping of. the deck. Swabbing, swabbing. Swiping. Swabbing the deck. (laughs) One could think of many others, no doubt. But I'm afraid we shan't have time to go very much further. A final checkup reveals that Canada Dry has lost a total of $40, which is uh, pretty good for us gentlemen this evening. Now, Mr. Cross, may we have a word from you, and I'll be back with the lineup for next week. Are you one of those people who enjoy making a bedtime raid on the refrigerator? I know most of us do, for food just seems to taste better at that time. Now, I'm going to suggest that you drink Canada Dry Ginger Ale on these occasions. For Canada Dry is an ideal beverage with a late snack. Soothing and refreshing inwardly, the delightful flavor of choice Jamaica ginger is pleasing to the palate and an aid to digestion. As a matter of fact, Canada Dry is recommended by many doctors to convalescents. So next time you want a bite to eat and something to drink just before you go to bed, have a glass of Canada Dry Ginger Ale. It'll make that food taste even better, and it will get you ready for a good night's sleep. Now here's Mr. Fadiman with news of next week's guests. Thank you, Mr. Cross. 
And uh, Mr. Rex Stout and Mr. Carl Van Doren, will you too please accept Canada Dry's thanks for joining the party this evening and helping us out so well? Remember, Canada Dry Ginger Ale, Sparkling Water, Tom Collins Mixer, and Lime Ricky come in convenient sizes. Why don't you check your supply right away? The large family size is economical, costing only 15 cents plus bottle deposits. This is Milton Cross saying good night for Canada Dry until next week at this time. Information, please, on tuned to yesterday from the 26th of September, 1939, on the NBC Blue Network. That was from their first year on the air, attracting close to 9 million listeners Tuesday nights at 7.30. This is an hour of quiz programs on tuned to yesterday. I'm your host, Mark Lavonier, now on to the comedy quiz series, You Bet Your Life, hosted by Groucho Marx, an NBC episode from November 22, 1950. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the secret word tonight is table, T-A-B-L-E. Really? You bet your life! More than 3,000 DeSoto Plymouth dealers of America present Groucho Marx in You Bet Your Life, the comedy quiz series produced and transcribed from Hollywood. And here he is, the one, the only... Groucho! That's me, Groucho Marx. Well, here I am again with $2,500 for one of our couples. Fenneman, who's first to try for it? We invited some Swiss war brides to the program tonight, and just before we went on the air, our studio audience selected Mr. and Mrs. Warren Oaks. And here they come now. Folks, come on over here and meet Groucho Marx. Welcome, children, for the DeSoto Plymouth dealers. And if you say the secret word while we're talking, you'll win $100 in cash. It's a common word, something you'll find around the house. Claire and, uh, and Warren Oaks, is that right? That's right. Oh, you're a Swiss war bride? I am. You're a very pretty one, eh? You're the groom, I presume. Mm, that's right. You're not quite as pretty, huh? <laughs> but you're, you're a fine, manly-looking fellow. Oh, right? thank you. Where are you from, uh, Warren? I'm from the uh, Mile City of Denver. Where? Denver, Colorado. Mm -hmm. What did you say before it was? The Mile High City. No, how do you know? Did you measure it? Well, I, I was told. Oh, believe everything that you're told. Eh? <laughs> what, uh, what sort of work do you do, uh, Warren? Well, I'm in the advertising business for Acme Beer. Oh, is that so? Their oh. display department. Yes, I don't seem to remember a, a Swiss war. When was that, uh, Claire? You say you're a Swiss war bride. Switzerland hasn't had a war since 200 years. Is that so? Well, for a Swiss war bride, I must say you hold your age very well. <laughs> you don't look a day over 190. <laughs> Where are you all from? No, no, that's right. <laughs> That silly garden, Switzerland. Where, where are you from? From the Welsher district. The what, sir? The Welsher district. Welsher district? Oh, that sounds like it's in Wales. Eh? It's a part of Los Angeles. Oh. <laughs> oh, Wilshire, you mean. Eh? Well, that's practically in Switzerland. Eh? That's a very cute suburban accent you have. Is that uh, pure native Californian, uh, Claire? No. Must be a Swiss accent. Am I, am I getting warmer? No. Don't be so emphatic. Uh, <laughs> stumble a little, huh? So I'll have company. What do you mean it isn't a Swiss accent? Why isn't it? I couldn't have a Swiss accent as we don't have any That's Swiss okay. language. There is no Swiss language? No. Well, how do you, how do you talk to each other? You just stand on a mountaintop and yodel across the back? <laughs> We have four languages, French, German, Italian, and Romance. What was the last one? Romance. Romance? That's right. Uh, which one do you speak, Claire? I speak French. Good. Well, how would you ask me for a kiss in French? I wouldn't ask you for a kiss. <laughs> well, why not? <laughs> I'll throw on a charm here. <laughs> She'll never suspect what I'm doing. Why not? I don't think my husband would like it. I'm not interested in kissing your husband. <laughs> How would you ask him for a kiss in French? Don't want to busy. 
He may be busy, but ask him anyway. <laughs> Maybe you better leave your name at the front office, huh? But, uh, could you tell us something about Switzerland? What is it noted for? It's scenery, watches, and cheese. Watches and cheese, huh? I suppose you watch the cheese through those little holes, huh? <laughs> you know, I, I've often wondered, Claire, why, why do they have those holes in cheese? Is that to get on the other side? No, that's another joke. <laughs> why do they have those holes in cheese? Why not? I say everything twice, so the first time, just ignore it, huh? <laughs> Smart, you'll ignore it the second time, too. <laughs> now, why do they have those holes in keys? That's the third time. I'm pretty sick of it myself. Now. Why not again? Why not again? Well, that's as good an answer as any. <laughs> why not? Why not have holes in everything? Why not have holes in donuts? They have them. They have holes in really. That, that's me. Too little and too late, huh? <laughs> I know they have holes in socks, but that's a, just a personal... Uh, now, when you, when you think of Switzerland, uh, Warren, uh, what comes to mind, first of all? Well, I think that above all is the beautiful scenery. Mm. What else know. do you think of when you think uh, of Switzerland? Second, uh, <laughs> I think, secondly, I think of the wonderful cleanliness of the country. Is that all that Switzerland means to you, Warren? Wasn't there something else in Switzerland that you'll never forget? Well, there were, uh, there is something, uh, that's the uh, beautiful cows. <laughs> what was that? Beautiful cows. Beautiful cows, huh? They have big bells around their necks. They have bells around their necks. <laughs> I'm afraid you're not very romantic. I, I was thinking of Claire, but if you'd rather think of cows, I'll think of Claire. <laughs> now, Claire, in America, when a girl wants to find herself a bow, she just goes to the nearest drive-in. How do you, how do you, how do the girls get a man in Switzerland? In Switzerland, we have clubs. Well, that sounds effective. <laughs> Just pick out the sucker you want and swat him with a club, eh? No, I don't... What do you mean? What kind of clubs? I don't mean that. We have social clubs for well, sports. For sports? That's right. Well, you're saying the same thing over again in different words, that's all. Right? Now, it's just one more thing, uh, Claire. All Swiss are traditionally good yodelers. Can, can you yodel? No, I can't. You can't? Well, can you sing any kind of Swiss songs that... Uh... Oh, I could sing yours. Well, Swiss uh, nursery rhyme. I, I'd like that. Yeah, I'd like that. Un siphon, les petites marionnettes. Un siphon, fon, fon, trois petits tours et puis s'en vont. That's very sweet, isn't it? Huh? <laughs> and now, if you put a diaper on me, I'll go to bed. Huh? <laughs> That was really very pretty, Claire, and uh, that song sounded almost as sweet as you look. Now, let's see if you two will get a chance at the $2,500. Fenneman, explain the rules. Each of our three couples has $20. They each bet as much of that 20 as they want on each of four questions. And the couple that earns the most money gets a chance at the $2,500 DeSoto Plymouth question at the end of the show. You see, our other two couples are in a waiting room off stage, so they don't know what's happening out here. All right, now, here we go. Let's see how high I can build you $20. You selected foreign monetary units as your category. Here's your first question. How much of the 20 will you risk? Ten. Ten. All right. What is the monetary unit of Mexico? Pesos. Peso is right. <laughs> and you're off to a good start, Pacho. We have $30. You're up to a flying start. Remember, you're going for $2,500. How much of the $30 will you bet? 25 20 25. 20 20 Okay. <laughs> I know who's the boss in that outfit. <laughs> What is the monetary unit of Italy? The lira. The lira! You folks are really climbing now. You have $50. Yes, they have $50. That's king lira. Now, here's your third question. How much will you bet? 40. Now, what is the monetary unit of Russia? The ruble. The ruble is right. Oh, they're really on their way now. They have $90. All right, you got $90, and here's your last chance to beat the other couples. How much of the 90 are you going to go for? Pretty dramatic, huh? Well, should we go for 80? Mm-hmm. Or 90? 90. 90. What's the 90. What is the monetary unit of England? The shilling. Or the pound. Pound. Which is it now? Pound. pound. The pound is right. 
and they wind up with a grand total of one hundred and eighty dollars. Thanks and good luck from the DeSoto Plymouth dealers. Groucho, the uh, secret word is... Just call me Mr. Marks if you don't mind. <laughs> Mr. Marks, the secret word I'll is... Call me Groucho. <laughs> Mr. Groucho, the... the <laughs> I'll call me Mr. Marks. Huh? The secret word... Call me word. Charlie, I'm sick of both of them. Harpo, the secret word is... Te- <laughs> now I can't talk. <laughs> Say, what's the matter? You're not calling me Chico, huh? It's table. Chico is a table? <laughs> what kind of nonsense is this, huh? Well, I was trying Take to... Take your business, panel. All right, I will. I'm getting paid for being funny. <laughs> it's right down here. Uh, we invited some home economics teachers to the program tonight, and just before we went on the air, our studio audience selected Miss Rosabelle Murchison. Her partner is a typical husband from the audience, Mr. Robert Farnham. Folks, come on over here and meet Groucho Marx. Welcome to You Bet Your Life. And if you say the DeSoto Plymouth secret word, you'll divide $100 in cash. It's a common word, something you'll find around the house. Mrs. Rosabelle Murchison, is that right? That's correct. You're, you're married, Rosabelle, then? Yes, I am. Unfortunate. What does your husband do for a living? He's an attorney. Well, even more unfortunate. <laughs> a home economics teacher and a typical husband, eh? Robert Farnham? That's me. You're the, you're the typical husband, eh, Robert? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. You guess so, huh? Well, typical husband, all right. No mind of his own. <laughs> Where are you from, Bob? New York City. New York City, huh? How long have you been married, uh, Bob? 17 years. 17 years, huh? How'd you meet your wife, or vice versa? Well, uh, I was a policeman out in Coney Island. And I jumped over the boardwalk and went out into the water in full uniform and saved this boy. I brought him out of the water and came back to the beach, and the next thing I knew, I was knocked down. And there was this girl slapping kisses at me. And what do you mean, slapping your kisser? I don't understand. Just you. telling me how grateful she was and oh, for saving her brother right. and uh, what she couldn't do enough for me. And here I was in a wet uniform. She knocked me down in the sand, and the sand was in my pockets and in my shoes and clung to me. And then they invited me home and... And they start feeding me goulash and pressing my pants and washing my shoes. Did you have the pants on when they pressed them? (laughs) No, I had them off. I was standing behind the curtain and it fixed me up okay. How did did the uniform turn out? Pretty good? No, it didn't turn out pretty good. I said. What did you do? You quit the force after that? Oh, no. I'm still in the police department. You're still in the police department out here locally? No. I'm out here on a vacation. Oh. 30 days vacation. I see. Once you get 30 days, as a rule, it's not a vacation. <laughs> well, now, do you go down the boardwalk here and jump over uh, occasionally, or do you wait till you get back to Coney Island? Uh, I'll wait till I go back to Coney Island. You came out alone? No, with my wife. Oh, you you're here. You didn't come on a pleasure trip. Now, your husband is a... <laughs> and uh, your husband is a lucky man. He's married to a cooking teacher. Is that right, Miss? That's right. Does he crab about your cooking, or does he eat everything with relish? He eats everything I cook with relish. Well, if you have to eat everything with relish, your cooking can't be very good. (laughs) Now, how do you go about teaching your pupils to cook, uh, Roosevelt? What's the first thing you do? Well, the first thing that we do in the laboratory is acquaint them with all the utensils, such as a casserole, the double boiler, the frying pan, the spatula. You forgot the most important thing. What about the can opener? (laughs) <laughs> All right, now I'm familiar with everything in the kitchen except the cook As a matter of fact, I'm pretty familiar with her too But uh, Besides cooking, what do you teach your students, or is that enough? Oh, how to use the salad fork and the cocktail fork, for instance Which one is which, and so forth Bob, what is the difference between a cocktail fork and a... The other kind, huh? Well, uh, salad uh, fork, huh? Salad fork you eat your salad with. <laughs> oh, that's, lo- that's logical. <laughs> and you drink your cocktails with a cocktail fork, huh? <laughs> Besides, after three cocktails, who cares? <laughs> Bob, suppose you went to a big formal dinner. How... how... How could he be sure he's using the uh, right fork, Rosabelle? How could Bob be sure? Well, he should watch the hostess and use the same one she does. 
Well, I have nothing against the horses, but if I must use the same fork, I'd want it washed first. Eh? the hostess wash, I just want the fork wash. I don't know whether they heard that. I don't want the hostess wash, I just want the fork wash. I guess they heard it, huh? Well, Bob, you're going to be a social flop. Now, let's see how you two will make out in the battle for the $2,500. You've got to work together as a team and run you $20 no more than our other couple. Can't tell you how much our first couple won, but Fetterman's going to remind our listeners. The Swiss war bride and her husband won $180. Here we go. Let's see. Uh, let's see how high you can build your twenty bucks. You selected food and drink. How much are you going to bet at the twenty dollars? Ten dollars. Bet the whole thing. Let's make it ten. Okay. Now here's your first question. You're going to bet ten dollars. Uh, what is the main ingredient of Welsh rabbit? Cheese, and it may either be milk or beer. You don't have to go any further. Cheese is fine. Huh? And you're off to a great start. You have thirty dollars now. Remember, you're going for $2,500. How much of the $30 will you bet? Twenty. Twenty. $20. What kind of liquor is used in crepe Suzette? Brandy. Brandy. Brandy is right. <laughs> now you folks have $50. Here's your third question. How much of the 50 are you going to try? Forty. $40. All right. What fruit is used in a Waldorf salad? Apples. Apples is right. Climbing now, they have ninety dollars. You got ninety dollars, huh? Eighty. You're going to bet eighty dollars, huh? You're really giddy, aren't you? Here's your last chance to beat the other couples. Now, uh, what is the main ingredient of catsup? Tomatoes. Tomatoes, Tomatoes is right. And they're lining up the grand and good luck from the DeSoto Plymouth dealers. Thank you, and goodbye, Bob, and take good care of your uniform. Well, Groucho, I guess we still know that the secret word is table. Uh-huh. Uh, just before we went on the air, we went searching through our audience tonight for people with unusual occupations, and here come the two who were chosen to be on the program, Miss Margie Dean and the Sideburn Kid. Come on over here, folks, and meet Groucho Marx. Welcome for the DeSoto Plymouth dealers, and if you say the secret word, you'll spend $100 in cash. It's a common word, something you'll find around the house. Miss uh, Margie Dean, eh? That's your name, and uh, the sideburn... Boy, I hadn't seen you before. Eh? <laughs> How long have you been out here? Sideburn kid, eh? Yeah. All right, sideburn, come out from one of those bushes. I, I see you. What's your real name? The sideburn kid. I mean your real name. Well, everyone calls me the sideburn kid. You're lucky. You should hear what everybody calls me. Eh? <laughs> I'm not through with you, Gabby. I can still see you through a haze there, but I'll be back to you in a minute. Eh? Margie Dean, eh? Well, where are you from, Marge? I was born in Boise, Idaho, but I've been in California since I was five. Since you were five? Mm -hmm. You remember Boise at all? No, I don't. Do you have any little Boise or girls? Or... No, sir, I no. don't have. Mm -hmm. uh, are you married? No. <laughs> I'm relieved by that answer. <laughs> now, Margie, Fenneman says you have an unusual occupation there. Just what is it? I teach um, parrots to talk. You teach parrots to talk? Yes. Is that, could you teach the sideburn kid uh, how to say his name? <laughs> certainly could. That's a peculiar occupation. How did you ever get into that kind of a job? Well, I had the, the bird given to me as a gift. Some, somebody gave you the bird? Uh-huh. And what, what is his name? Fibber. Is Fibber a boy parrot or a girl parrot? I don't know. Does Fibber talk? Very much so. Mm -hmm. Why don't you ask Fibber what is... Uh... On the other hand, it's probably not important. <laughs> not important, except to another parrot. And... <laughs> Mr., uh, what did you say your name was? The Sideburn Kid. <laughs> You're the same fellow as here a minute ago, right? I hope so. What does your wife call you? Well, she calls me just about what every... Wife calls her husband and a lot of nice names when she wants a lot of nice things, you know. Like what? Honey, sweetheart, darling. And, uh, well, it just continues on, you know. I guess so. <laughs> How would it be in England now that June is here? <laughs> I don't know what I'd do over there. With a pound at a dollar ninety now. Uh, what does the draft board call you? They don't. I got six kids. Oh. 
Well, you're more valuable to the army by being a civilian. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, uh, kid, I'll just call you kid, huh? That's all right. From your, from your cowboy hat and cowboy pants and cowboy boots, I, I imagine you're a streetcar motorman. Is that right? <laughs> no. Well, ser seriously, what is, what is your profession? No, I twirl the ropes and I'm a bullwhipper. A bullwhipper? Isn't yeah. that against the law, whipping bulls? No, 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 I don't whip bulls. I, I, uh, I take my rope and use it to cut objects from people's hand, what use it to do tricks, and yeah. use my rope to do tricks. I see. Could you teach me? Uh... Yeah, I can teach you. Oh. Well, you take the end of the rope in your right hand. Never mind, I was at the end of a rope once, and <laughs> I'll be hanged if I'm going to go through that. <laughs> Margie, let's talk about your parrots. Uh, what kind do you train? Mexican yellowheads. Mexican yellowheads? Why, why that particular breed? Well, they're very colorful, and they're very intelligent, and they're very lovable and affectionate. Well, in what, what way are they intelligent? I mean, well, what they, for example, uh, what do they do? For instance, in the evening, uh, they'll be in the room just chattering away, uh -huh. carrying on wonderful conversations, mm -hmm. and uh, I'll go over and turn on the television, and believe me, they just are quiet immediately, and they don't utter a sound until the television set is turned off. The parrots they're watch the television? the television. And you say they're intelligent? <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, uh, Sideburn, what did you say your real name was? The Sideburn Kid. I'll just call you old Ironsides, huh? <laughs> Why are you called the Sideburn Kid? Well, I'm called the Sideburn Kid because I grow the sideburns. I didn't think it was because you wore shin plasters, huh? <laughs> Why did you grow the sideburns? It makes me look older because when I was young, I looked too young and everybody called me a kid, so by having these whiskers, why, I passed for an age that I wanted to be a man then. I see. Well, wouldn't it have been simpler to grow a mustache? <laughs> well, <laughs> everybody wears those. And that's kind of common, I thought. <laughs> In other words, you wanted to attract attention, is that it? Of course you could attract attention just by drilling a hole in your head and planting petunias. <laughs> you know? I never thought of that. <laughs> well, you're a couple of good sports, and if I ever need a parrot with sideburns, I'll call on both of you. Now, you're going to play your bet your life. You beat our other two couples, and you get a chance at the $2,500 DeSoto Plymouth question. I can't tell you how much our other couples won, but Fenneman's off stage to remind our listeners. The Swiss war bride and her husband are still ahead with $180. Here we go. Let's see how high I can build you $20. You selected the young of animals and birds. Is that right? Right. You have $20. Here's your first question. How much will you bet? Well, let's see. No, we won't bet at all. We didn't have anything when we came in here. <laughs> let's enough. go 50-50. Let's bet $10. Okay, Piker. <laughs> Here's your first question, $10. What is a young lion called? A lioness. Oh. One answer between you now. Decide on one answer between you. Talk it over with him, huh? Uh, okay, now. A cop is right, huh? Well, on the way, they have $30. We're finishing last place in the National League. Now, remember, you're going for $2,500 tonight. How much is the 30 you're going to go for? 25. 25. What is a young goose called? A young goose. Not a goslin, no. A young goose. Not a duckling, no. Come on, kids. Young goose. What is it called? Tired of a basin, man. What is it? Young goose. Duckling? Oh, I can't get it. I'm sorry. It's, it's a gosling. I think you are. They have $5 now. Oh, that's a shame. I'm terribly sorry. But that's life. It's also $5. Here's your third question. What is a young horse called? A colt. A colt is right. <laughs> well, you're climbing again. Oh, you have climbed. You've got ten dollars now. Here's your last chance to be the other couples. How much of the ten will you go for? What have we got to lose? Just as well, got it all. All right, all of it. All what is a young cow called? A calf. A calf is right. And they wind up with twenty dollars. And that means that the Swiss war bride and her husband, with one hundred eighty dollars, get the chance at the DeSoto Plymouth. $2,500 question.
Here we go. All right. We go for $2,500. I'll give you 15 seconds to decide on a single answer between you, so think carefully, and please no help in the audience. Here it is. In the 1800s, millions of cattle were driven to market over a famous trail that went from Texas to Abilene, Kansas. What is the name of this historic trail known in song and story? What is the answer you two have decided upon? The Santa Fe Trail? No, no, I, I'm sorry. It's the Chisholm Trail. I'm sorry. That's the correct answer. So that means the big question next week will be worth $3,000. Well, you lost the big money, but you won how much? $180 in the quiz. $180 in the quiz. Congratulations and thanks to both of you and to all of our other contestants. Good night. Thank you. Be sure to tune in again next Wednesday night at this time for the Groucho Marx Show, when the big question will be worth $3,000. And don't miss Groucho's television show, also presented by the DeSoto Plymouth Dealers of America. And remember, all dealers who sell DeSoto also sell Plymouth, two great cars, both products of the Chrysler Corporation. And when you drive in, tell them Groucho sent you. Good night, folks, and remember... Just be sure to see your DeSoto Plymouth dealer. You bet your life on Tuned to Yesterday from November 22nd, 1950 from NBC. And that wraps up this hour of quiz shows on Tuned to Yesterday. Be sure to be with us next time for more great programs from Radio's Golden Years. Until our next hour together, I'm Mark Levonier. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 